Um, I, I want us to sit with a thought today. I've, I've uh, entitled the message today, Powerful and Personal. Powerful and Personal. You know, I've, I've actually come to realize that there are certain people in life, right, where when we see them from a distance, they, they seem great. They, they, they seem powerful. There, there are just some people that you and I admire. We, we wish we could be closer with them because they seem so great, because they seem so powerful. They have some special uh, wisdom or special talent. This is kind of how I feel about Steph Curry. Um, I, I truly believe that Steph Curry and I, we could be great friends if, if, if he would just give me a chance, right? Like Steph loves golf. He plays golf. I love golf. I play golf. Steph is a dad. I'm a dad. Steph loves Jesus. Heck, I'm a pastor. I love Jesus. See, if he just gave me a chance, Steph, if you're listening to this, uh, hit me up. Let's go play a round of golf. I'll bring you to my church afterwards. You see, Steph is someone like that. He's someone great that I think many of us would long to be close with, right? It also makes me think of a friend that I know who actually got to play golf with a pretty well-known celebrity-type-ish pastor. Uh, I don't want to drop this pastor's name, but he's someone that speaks at conferences with thousands of people. He's written best-selling books. As Ron Burgundy would probably say, he's kind of a big deal. And my friend actually got the chance to play a round of golf with this pastor. And for anyone who's familiar with the game of golf, it's, it's a game where you're kind of stuck with your playing partners for four to five hours. That's a lot of time to get to know the people that you're playing with, right? And so after this round of golf, I asked my friend, I'm like, hey, did you get to know this pastor a little bit better? And it's funny because my friend actually described his time with this pastor as awkward. He... In his own words, he said that pastor really couldn't carry a conversation between the two of them. And that's so surprising, right? Because pastors are known for how well they speak in front of crowds of people. But when it was just the two of them, my friend realized that as the, the, the closer that he got to this celebrity type pastor, as great as he seemed in public and on stage, when it was just the two of them, it was different. It was awkward. It wasn't personal. But see, on the flip side, right, I think that many of us, we do have people who are personal. We do have people who are close to us, who love us. But let's be honest, they're just not that great. They're not that powerful. See, they they may be personal, but they're not powerful. There will be moments in your life and in my life where we're facing some great challenge, some great trial, some great suffering. And as much as these personal people may love us, may be close to us, may have the greatest intentions towards us. Let's face it, they can't fix some of the things that we face. Sure, they can sit with us, they can grieve with us, they can pray for us, but our friends can't cure the cancer. Our our, our family members can't fix our marriages when they seem to be broken. Our friends, our family can't, can't seem to help our anxiety or the depression or the heartbreak that weighs so heavily on us because there are some things in life that are just too big for them. Now, I mention all of this because what I want us to see today is that Jesus is actually uh, unlike anyone that you and I have ever known. 
because Jesus is actually far greater, far more powerful than any of us could ever imagine. And yet at the same time, he is far more personal than any of us could hope for. He actually wants a relationship with you and me today. He wants deeper intimacy than we've ever known. Jesus is powerful and personal. And I want us to see that today in two different encounters with Jesus in this story. But just to set the story up, I know we didn't read this part of the story, but back in verse 5, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what you need to understand is that Jesus clearly had a special relationship with the, pe- with the characters in the story, with Martha and with Mary and Lazarus, their brother. We, we, we can read in other parts of the New Testament that Jesus would make special visits to, to visit this family's home. He would spend special time with them because it was clear that he loved these three people. But see, that's why that makes this story so confusing. Because when the two sisters send a message to Jesus back in verse 3 and they tell him, Jesus, he whom you love, and they're talking about Lazarus, is ill. In this story, Jesus doesn't go to this family right away. In fact, it tells us that he intentionally doesn't go to this family that he loved to, to heal and to help Lazarus. But that's crazy because Jesus did that all the time. He, he cured the sick. He performed miracles. He fixed other people's problems. And yet, in verse 6, with a family that he loved deeply, it says that Jesus stayed two days longer where he was. He delayed in going to this family. And because Jesus delayed, Lazarus died. Now, I want you to notice that when Jesus finally decides to show up on the scene. When Jesus finally gets to Martha and Mary, and this is after their brother Lazarus has died, Jesus is showing up to an utterly hopeless situation. John wants us to see that in verse 17. Look at it again with me. In verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. That's an intentional detail that John wants us to know that Lazarus has been in this tomb for four days because you have to understand in that day and in that culture, there was this common belief that that when a person died, their soul could actually hover around the dead body for up to three days. And the belief was that up to three days, the soul could make its way back into the dead body and the person could live again. In other words, there was hope. There was hope that a dead person could live again. But, but after the third day, you have to understand the dead body would start to change in appearance. It would start to decompose. And you get hints of that in verse 39 when Martha mentions to Jesus that by now, Lazarus's body would be giving off an odor. Because why? This is the fourth day. There is no hope. Lazarus isn't just dead. He is dead, dead. He's irreversibly dead. And this is when Jesus shows up on the scene. Here is the first encounter I want us to see, and it's with Martha. Because in this encounter with Martha, we get to see the incomprehensible power of Jesus. The incomprehensible power of Jesus. 
Look at verse 21 again with me. It says this. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Friends, aren't Martha's words here so relatable, so relevant? Like what she is expressing to Jesus in these words, it can be such an accurate picture of how so many of you walked into this room today and, and how you might be feeling towards God right now. I have to imagine in a room like this and with a crowd as big as this, there are some of you who are here today and deep down, you know you're frustrated with God. You know you're angry with God. You would say to God, if he was here physically in this room, something to the tune of God, you didn't show up for me that time when I asked you to show up. Like if we're honest with ourselves, what we want to say to him is, God, if you truly loved me, why didn't you give me that job that I begged you for? God, if you truly loved me, why am I still single? All my other friends have gotten married. Why not me? Or, or God, if, you, if you're truly good, if you truly love me, then why do I struggle financially? Why won't you fix this problem in my life I keep asking you to fix? Why won't you save that person that I'm desperately crying out to you to save day and night? See, because in each of our minds, a good, a loving God should do all of these things. He should show up for us when we ask him to. He should, he should give us good things. And when he doesn't, just like Martha, we're disappointed. We're angry. Can you relate with that this morning? Can I ask you, are you someone that's here today and deep down you're angry? You're disappointed with God because he didn't show up. He didn't answer when you wanted him to in the way that you wanted him to when you cried out to him in a time of need. That's the kind of disappointment that Martha is bringing to Jesus in this moment. But, but friends, I hope you also understand here, what you need to see here is that Jesus is showing up for Martha. Like he is encountering Martha precisely at the moment that she is disappointed with him. I love this. I love this about Jesus, that he is engaging with someone who is angry and who is disappointed with him. And what we see here is that Jesus isn't offended by Martha's anger at all. He, he's not the type of person to get defensive. No, because he is showing up to give Martha the exact hope that she needs in this very moment. And so, friends, I hope you see the challenge for you and me in this. This should challenge us today that, that we shouldn't be running away from God in our disappointment and in our anger. We shouldn't be running away from him, but we, we should be running towards him. We should be bringing our anger and our disappointment to him. Jesus' encounter shows us that God isn't offended when we pray prayers like, God, to be honest, I'm pissed off right now. God, how could you, why would you let me go through this pain, through this suffering, through this loss? God, I don't understand what you're doing in my life and I'm pissed off. You see, it's those kinds of raw, honest, angry prayers. It's that kind of wrestling with God and fighting with God and venting to God that guess what? God loves. He loves those kinds of prayers. 
He wants those kinds of prayers as much as he wants the worship and the praise and the thanksgiving. Because when we pray them, when we bring our disappointment and our anger to him, that's when he can show us who he really is and what he's capable of. That, that's when he can actually start to show you that he has a hope and he has a help that you can't find in anyone else or anything else in this world in your times of need. That's what your wrestling does. It shows you the incomprehensible power of God. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to do with Martha in verses 25 to 26. Look at these words again with me. Jesus says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, Martha? I love that question. Do you believe this? Because Jesus is essentially asking Martha if she can believe in something that she doesn't understand and can't necessarily explain. Resurrection? Martha has no category for resurrection. But what Jesus is saying to her is, Martha, do you believe that my power is so far beyond anything you could ever imagine? Like, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the one that can raise dead things back to life. That's who I am. That's what I can do. Even something as irreversible as death, I can reverse it. And so what Jesus is trying to teach her is that with him, there is always hope. Death isn't final. Death doesn't get the last word. Because with Jesus, every single thing that can, can be redeemed and restored, it will be redeemed and restored. And then Jesus also says to her, Martha, I'm not just the resurrection, I'm the life. Like, do you believe that I am the life now? You don't have to wait till the end of time for resurrection. You can have life. You can have abundant life, true life now. You can have power and confidence to face anything in this life. You can face any trial, every, any suffering, any sadness, and you can be filled with great hope and great joy because I am the power that you need. I am the hope that you need. I'm the life that you need now. So friends, even when that job or that promotion falls through, I am the life now. Even when your heart gets broken and the, the pain and the sting of that is overwhelming, I am the life now. Even in singleness, even in loneliness, even in anxiety, even through unemployment and joblessness, even in cancer, even in something as, as devastating as infertility, Jesus is trying to say, I am the life and with me there is always hope. Do you believe this? Because I am the only one that can raise dead things back to life. Don't you know that no problem is too big for me? Don't you know that I can make a way even when you don't see a way? And he's asking Martha and he's asking every single one of us this morning, do you believe that? Friends, can I just ask how different might our lives actually look if we truly believe that with God, nothing is impossible? Like what kind of confidence could you have in your life, in your career, in your relationships, if you truly believed that no problem was too big, no person was too lost, no circumstance was too hopeless, because with God, there is always the power to turn things around. 
what kind of prayer life would you have? How much more would you pray? How much more would you pray for change and actually expect that change could come? I'm, I'm not just talking about change in our own hearts. I'm also talking about change in the hearts of people around us. Change in our justice system, change in our healthcare system, change in our education system. How much could we pray for this kind of change if we truly believed that God had miracle working power and that power was on our side? Like, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the game Monopoly Deal. It's a, it's a card game that we love to play in our house. And in Monopoly Deal, right, there is this card called the Deal Breaker card. It, it, it's essentially this card where whoever holds it, they know that even when the game looks like it's over, even when it looks like they're losing and everybody else around them is about to win, if they have the deal breaker card, they can play it and it changes the game. Like you can win even when it looks like you're about to lose. And you can always kind of tell who's holding the deal breaker card because they have this stupid, smug, little confident grin on their face. And you know what they're thinking, right? They're thinking the game is over. I've got this. Why? It's because they're holding the ultimate trump card. And what Jesus wants to say to you and me today is that I am the resurrection and, and the life. I am the ultimate trump card. I am the ultimate trump card that you need so you can face all of the struggles and all of the hopeless situations in this life. Do you believe that? But friends, I want us to see that the story doesn't just leave us there. Because you have to realize, right, the situation hasn't changed. Even though Jesus makes this great statement about his power and who he is, at this moment, Lazarus is still in the tomb. He's still dead. There doesn't seem to be any way around that. And so if you're like me, as you're reading this, you have to be asking the question, Jesus, if you're so powerful, if you're truly the resurrection and the life, then what does it mean in those moments where Lazarus is still in the tomb? Like, Jesus, I believe you can change things. I believe you can work miracles, but what am I supposed to do in those seasons of my life where I'm praying for you to change something, and I know you can change something, but nothing changes? Like, where do I go when my breakthrough doesn't come, and the miracle doesn't come for me, and I'm stuck in that place where I don't want to be? And this is where we need to see Jesus' second encounter. And this is with the other sister, with Mary. Because it's in Jesus' encounter with Mary where we get to see the intensely personal love of Jesus. You see, in verses 28 to 29, it says that Martha goes back to her sister Mary and she tells Mary, hey, go see Jesus. And that's when Mary goes to him. Look again at verse 32 with me. It says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Did you notice that Mary says the exact same words to Jesus that Martha said back in 20, verse 21? It's verbatim. Ma Mary says to Jesus, Jesus, if you'd been here, Lazarus was, wouldn't have died. But did you also notice how different Jesus' response to Mary is? Like with Martha, when she says that to him, Jesus responds with a statement about who he is, what he can do, that he is the resurrection and the life. Yet what does he do here with Mary? 
You see it in verse 33. Look at it again. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's it. That, that's his response with Mary. It's silence. Jesus didn't say a word to her. All it says is that he is moved in his spirit and overcome with sadness. Jesus, what is going on here? Well, I think what this encounter shows us is this, that Jesus actually meets each of us differently. That, that Jesus ministers to each of us differently and he does it according to our different needs. And so you need to understand this morning that no matter where you might be on the spiritual spectrum, whether you've grown up in church or this is your first time in church, whether your faith in God is great or whether your faith in him is small, no matter where you are, Jesus knows what you need and Jesus loves you and Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. Like if you look back at verse 20, we see that when Jesus came to these sisters, it was Martha that went out and met him. But it says Mary remained seated in the house. And I've always wondered to myself, why did Mary re remain seated in the house? I think some commentators, they, they mention that, um, you know, Mary might have been just observing the Jewish ritual of Shiva. Right? This, this mourning ritual in, in, in the Jewish religion where family members of someone who has died would stay seated in their homes for seven days and that's how they would mourn. And that might be true. That might be the case. But could it be that Mary didn't run to Jesus because she didn't have the strength to make it to him? Could it be that Martha had the strength to bring her anger, to bring her disappointment to Jesus but Mary didn't have that kind of strength. No, Mary, in her sadness, in her despair, couldn't even muster the strength to make it out to Jesus. I love how Tim Keller describes this. He says that what Martha needed was Jesus' ministry of truth, but what Mary needed was his ministry of tears. That what Martha needed in her anger and in her disappointment was truth. Truth of God's incomparable power, truth that God could reverse and redeem death, truth to give her hope in a hopeless situation. But that's not what Mary needed. Mary needed, she didn't need truth, she needed tears. What Mary needed in her sadness and in her hopelessness was comfort, to know that she wasn't alone in what she was going through. Mary needed to know that she was loved by someone that saw her and knew her and valued her enough to sit with her even in those sad moments. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus gave Martha a ministry of truth, but he's serving Mary with a ministry of tears right here. Don't you see why Jesus is so beautiful? Don't you see why we call him our perfect, wonderful counselor? Because he doesn't just offer us truth but he offers us his tears. Jesus doesn't just come up to you and me and say, hey, stop it. Stop being sad. Just hope in me. Believe in my power. No. Jesus sees our sadness and he enters into it. He sits with us in our sadness because that's how much Jesus loves us. <clears throat> that's how intense and how personal his love is. That what his people feel, 
he feels. Jesus loves us so much that he wraps his well-being up with our well-being. I remember a couple of years ago, <coughs> it, was a, it was a cold day at our house. We have two boys, and um, our two boys asked me and my wife, Allie, for hot chocolate. And, and so we told them, we told our two boys, go sit down at the dining table while mommy and daddy get the hot chocolate ready. And so Allie and I went to the kitchen and we got the hot chocolate ready. When the water was uh, boiled, we, we poured it into the cups and we brought it out to the table for our boys. But I think when we put the cups down, we had forgotten the spoons for stirring the hot chocolate. And, and so she and I went back to the kitchen and, and I'm, I'm talking about just a couple of seconds, right? Like five seconds max from the few feet from our dining room to the kitchen. Seconds that I'll never get back. Seconds that I'll kick myself for. My son Jordan, in that time, he had actually grabbed a cup of hot chocolate and he had accidentally spilled it all over his shirt. And, and at that moment, I heard him scream like I had never heard him scream before. And so I immediately ran out, not knowing what had happened. But when I realized what had happened, because I had lifted up his shirt and I had seen that his skin all over his chest was scalded and it was bubbling up. Friends, I can't explain it. I began to lose myself. Like anyone who knows me knows I'm not an emotional guy. I, I, I've maybe cried a handful of times in my life. My wife always tells me I'm emotionally handicapped. But I'll tell you that in that moment, I became so overwhelmed with emotions that I started crying. It, it was actually more like wailing. I was wailing. I felt helpless. And all I could think to do was hold my son, try to calm him down. But true story, literally in that moment, I felt like the burns were on my own body. And I still remember a moment that night. Right? We actually took him to the ER that day, and, and in the end, he ended up being okay. He still has some scars from that incident, but he's okay. And, and when we got home that night, after that whole ordeal, Jordan's shock, Jordan's pain had subsided. He had kind of calmed himself down, but I was still a mess. I was sobbing. I was crying. And I remember this moment when Jordan looked at me and he said, Daddy, why are you still crying? And this is what I said to him. I said, Jordy, I'm crying because that's how much I love you, buddy. Daddy loves you so much that when you get hurt, it hurts me. Friends, isn't that what love does? That what they feel, you feel. When they're sad, you're sad. When they're hurt, you're hurt. Because if you truly intensely, passionately love someone, you know that no matter how good things are going in your life, you can't truly be happy if the person that you love most is suffering. Your well-being is tied up with their well-being. And that is precisely what we see going on in verse 35, the shortest yet most profound verse in all the Bible where it says that when Jesus saw the sadness and despair of Mary, this woman that he loved deeply and all of those who were around her, it simply says in verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. See 
the intense, the personal love of God for you and me in these two words. That the God of the heavens, the creator of the universe, he weeps when we weep. He sees us. He, he values us. He sits with us in our sadness. And this is why in, in Hebrews 4.15, which was read earlier, it says this, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus is our high priest that loves us so much he feels what we feel. Jesus' love for us is so intense, so passionate, so personal that he wraps up his heart with our hearts. He wraps up his well-being with our well-being. And you know where we see the greatest proof of that? You know where we see the greatest evidence of that? It's at the cross. It's at the cross. The cross is the greatest proof of the depths of Jesus' love for you and me, that he was so concerned, he was so determined for our well-being that he went to the cross and he laid his life down at the cross. The gospel shows us a God that loved you and me so much that in order for us to live, he had to die. And even here in this story, when, when Jesus finally raises up Lazarus from the dead, when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and that happens at the end of the story, Jesus did it knowing that day that one day he would have to walk into his own tomb. Because at the end of the story, look at what the Jews and the religious leaders do after they see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. It says in verse 53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see, saving Lazarus that day meant death for Jesus. Saving us meant death for Jesus. And what amazes me is that Jesus, the one with all the power in heaven and on earth, he decided to lay his power down. He decided to lay his glory down. He took on flesh. He lived the life that you and I couldn't live. And he submitted himself to death. He went into his tomb so that you and I could come out of ours. Friends, see this Jesus, the one with incomprehensible power, yet the one with intensely personal love for you and for me. And know that when you and I place our faith in Jesus today, we get all of his power. We get all of his love because we actually get him. That's the invitation. That's the invitation to you and me this morning, that we wouldn't live and struggle and grieve apart from him in this life, but we would do it tethered to him. Can I just close by challenging all of us to simply do three things this week that we might actually start to encounter this powerful and personal Jesus. First, I want to encourage you guys, hope in the resurrection that's coming. Hope in the resurrection that's coming. Turn your eyes, turn your hope away from the things and the people of this life and turn it to Jesus. Jesus is a resurrection. He promises resurrection. So think about what that means. That if the resurrection is coming, what that means is that you and I can never miss out on anything that's good in this life. I, I wish I had the time to unpack this a little bit more, but wrap your minds around that. Wrap your minds around the truth that for believers, nothing can ever really be lost. Like those moments where you feel like you're misunderstood and you need to vindicate yourself. There is a day that's coming where it, you'll be vindicated. No, no thing can ever be lost. No dream can ever die. No opportunity can ever disappear. Nothing we care about can ever truly be broken or gone. 
Because if Jesus is offering eternal life today, and he is, then resurrection means that all things are going to be redeemed. All things will be made new in the resurrection that is coming. Hope in that. Bank your life on that. But secondly, I want to encourage you, live with Jesus' death-defying power for today. If Jesus has the power to raise even dead things back to life, then you and I need this power in our lives. And we need to know that the closer we walk with him, the closer we are to him, the more that we'll have this power, the more that we'll have confidence and security and boldness to face the challenging things and the impossible things of life. But lastly, bring your sadness, bring your disappointment to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect, wonderful counselor. He longs to sit with you in those moments where you're sad and angry and disappointed. And I'm not saying that this doesn't mean some of you shouldn't go seek therapy and get the services and help that you truly need. But I want us to know, I want us to believe that Jesus knows what we're going through. And he is the one that cares more. He cares better for, for us more than anything or more than anyone in this world. He longs to comfort and wrap his love around you. So bring your sadness to him. Sunset, I want to just encourage you guys to, to, to see this powerful and personal Jesus. This is what we're talking about when we say he doesn't invite us to religion, but he re- invites us to relationship. That, that we might be tethered to him, that we might experience his power and his love because this life is hard. And, and he has power available for us. He has love available for us. So go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that what we see in Jesus is your compassion and your heart and your, your desire for true relationship with each and every one of us. God, I know that there are some here in this room where, where we see Jesus as just some historical figure. We see him as just a good teacher. We think about you as some, some being that's, that's impersonal often and in the sky. And yet what this story teaches us is the exact opposite. That what you invite each and every one of us into, not only this morning, but every day of our lives, is the type of relationship where we can experience your power and your love for all of those moments that, that we feel hopeless. And so, God, I, I know that, that I couldn't possibly imagine all of the struggles, all of the challenges that, that face some of the people in this room, but I know that you do. And what I ask is that you would walk closely with them in this season. That, that, that their trials wouldn't be something that drive them away from you, but that you, they would find you in the midst of their trials. They would sense your power. They would sense your presence. They would sense that you are right next to them in the, in the times that, in the, and in the seasons that seem so tough. And so, Father, would you take these truths? Would you plant them in our hearts? Would they bear fruit? And, and would we be the kind of people who just seek to be tethered to you every moment of our lives? And as we do that, I pray that Jesus' name would be glorified in this city, that we would be a countercultural people, and, and that your, your church would be built up for your glory and for our good. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.